0: It's been two weeks since Russia launched its invasion in Ukraine, and people within Russia are finding themselves more isolated with every passing day, whether that's thanks to actions from foreign countries and companies, or from their own leaders. For Russia, every day of war is a step further into isolation. Russian sports teams have been banned from international events, academics blocked from conferences, anti-war critics silenced, Meanwhile, foreign governments are also trying to cut Russia off from the rest of the world financially. They've made it clear that their response to the invasion will be an economic war. The U.K. is announcing the largest and most severe package of economic sanctions that Russia has ever seen.
1: We will limit Russia's ability to do business in dollars, euros, pounds and yen to be part of the global economy. We'll limit their ability to do that.
0: So what can Russians expect as the country's war against Ukraine continues? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. Last week, we had a different idea about the kind of episode we'd bring you today. We'd planned to talk with a Russian anti-war protester. Someone who's also felt the pang of the sanctions against Russia and the cultural boycotts taking place around the world. But then on Friday, a few hours before our interview was scheduled to take place, this happened. Today, the Russian president signed a new law that threatens a 15-year prison sentence for spreading war information the Russian government deems to be false. Our guest told us that it was becoming impossible to publicly speak against the war while remaining in the country. We'd like to bring you their story one day, when it's safer to do so. Fortunately, we had also planned to talk to Al Jazeera correspondent Dorsa Jabari, who's been covering this war from Russia, and we were able to get in touch with her.
1: I am in the bureau in Moscow and we're still working despite the restrictions that have just come into effect by the country's government. And hopefully we will continue to work for the foreseeable future.
0: So Dorsa, we heard from you last week, just hours after Russia invaded Ukraine, and you told us in those early hours, people you spoke to in Moscow were surprised. Has
1: that changed? Well, they're still surprised that it's now turned into shock and anger and now just trying to come to terms with what their life will be like moving forward, because clearly things will change here very quickly.
0: Have you been to any of the anti-war protests?
1: Well, we tried. And I have to tell you what an anti-war protest looks like in Moscow is very different than what you would imagine anywhere else. First of all, to even go out to protest in public, you take a huge risk because it is illegal to protest in the country. And what happens is the police almost immediately arrest you, take you away, and you have a record. So your entire future is gone in about 30 seconds, basically. Mm. So we have seen very few people going out on a regular basis here in downtown Moscow, but it's not anywhere near the numbers we've seen in St. Petersburg, for example.
0: Since the invasion, more than 10,000 people across the country have been detained in anti-war protests, according to a local Russian human rights monitor. But threat of arrest isn't the only thing keeping people off the streets. Dorsa told us that there's not a lot of information available to Russians about what's
1: actually happening. Two-thirds of the public watches state TV. So their source of information is very much controlled. So... We've spoken to people actually on the street and we've shown them footage of uh, what's happening in Ukraine. They don't believe it. Hmm. They say it's not, it's not true. It's fake news. They dismiss it. Wow. Yeah.
0: What is state TV reporting right now?
1: State TV is showing what the president had called a special military operation in Donbass, in eastern Ukraine, where there is a separatist movement that got their independence recognized by Russia, There's about 800,000 Russians that live in that area of about 2 million. And Putin said they asked him for military help. And that's how he announced this operation. And that's what the people believe. They don't believe that there are Russian troops near Kiev or in Mariupol or Odessa or anywhere else, really. They believe what they're told on state TV and what they're told by the country's defense ministry.
0: So we're talking on Friday, March 4th, and today Russia's parliament voted on a bill to criminalize the spread of what it considers to be fake reports on the war. Can you
1: tell me more about that? What do we know? So in late February, there was a a letter that was sent out to local media saying that they cannot use the words war or invasion when referring to the operation in Ukraine. And they had to use the information that was only given by Russian Defense Ministry and Russian officials.
0: Then on Friday, the Duma, Russia's legislative body, approved that bill, essentially ending independent coverage of the war.
1: That bill now has forced basically almost all independent voices in the country to go silent. TV Rain, it's an independent, it was an independent TV station. They shut down. And the last broadcast that they showed the entire staff came on into the shots in the studio, and they said that they were leaving in protest. And they, as they were walking away, they said no to war. And then, after
0: that, the station broadcast a black and white version of Tchaikovsky's Swan Lake Ballet.
1: It's a nod to the country's history because this Swan Lake ballet is shown traditionally, especially in the Soviet era, on state TV, on loop, when there is a climate of crisis in the country. So that was the message this TV station had, basically saying that they're going into a period of instability and that no leadership lasts forever in Russia. I think it was a very strong message, a very powerful message.
0: I want to talk about the response to Putin and these actions from mostly the West, the U.S., the EU, the U.K., and that response has largely been economic. So talk about some of the biggest financial moves that they've made against Russia.
1: Well, the first one was sanctioning its uh, central bank as well as kicking Russia out of SWIFT.
0: That's the system that allows banks to communicate with each other across borders. It's overseen by the central banks of the G10 countries, as well as Europe's central bank. They chose to cut a handful of main Russian banks out of the system.
1: Also, Russia has over $630 billion in cash reserves.
0: And much of that is held outside of Russia, in overseas banks.
1: What they did also is they cut that off. Access to that is not available for the country. So they can't actually draw all of the money that they saved So what this did, it caused some to panic. Everyone has been running between ATMs to withdraw cash. Some get lucky, some do not.
0: I am scared that the government will expropriate all the money or the bank cards will get frozen. I don't know. I have been checking different places, waiting in queues, and looking for money for the second day in a row. I haven't managed to withdraw euros yet, so I am concerned. I need to get the cash somehow.
1: Many people in the past few days have been trying to take out as much money as they can from their bank accounts. If they had any dollars, they're keeping it, if they don't have to sell it, because the central bank was asking for 30% commission on the sale of any foreign currency. So if you had any dollars you wanted to sell, then would charge you
0: 30%. Dorsa says things are stabilizing a bit now. The central bank has dropped that commission rate to 12%. She doesn't see many lines outside of ATMs.
1: And the ruble has bounced back a little bit. When the invasion began and then the sanctions started coming very fast, the ruble just went insane. The numbers were crazy. The ruble absolutely in freefall.
0: The Russian currency plummeted like a stone.
1: It's stabilized slightly, but people are now worried because the sanctions are very severe, I would say, and the most severe I've seen in any country in this shorter period of time. The U.S. has also announced it
0: will ban Russian oil and gas. European countries, which are more dependent on Russian natural resources, haven't gone that far, yet. But it's not just foreign governments cutting Russia out of their economic spheres. Companies are withdrawing from the country, too.
1: The decisions that the companies have made, like oil and gas companies that have decided to leave, the car companies, the aviation industries that have pulled out, it's all political. It's all saying we are not going to do business with a country that has decided to invade its neighbor for no apparent reason, according to them. So I think for people here, those will have a much harder impact.
0: That impact is already settling in. If you own a car from a company that suspended relations with Russia and a part breaks down, you might be out of luck finding a replacement. There's no more shopping at Nike or H&M or Ikea. Russia's main Apple resale store shut down temporarily. When it reopened, it had significantly raised its prices. They know that once their stock is gone, there's no replenishing their supply. Economy aside, Russians faced a whole other host of repercussions. Russian planes aren't allowed to enter European airspace. And Russia's main airline is suspending international flights to everywhere besides Belarus. Some European countries have already stopped issuing visas to Russian citizens. And then there are the boycotts. Russian teams are banned from competition. Sporting events are moved or cancelled altogether sponsorships across all sports and divisions are ended. These are just some of the outcomes so far as the international sporting community moves to further isolate Russia.
1: I think uh, the sanctions that have hit the Russian culture sector and the sport sector are very much shocking to people. Russia is not being allowed to participate in the World Cup in 2022, later this year. I think that is a, very much a shock.
0: Especially, Dorsa says, for the athletes and culture workers on the receiving end of these decisions.
1: Because they don't understand why they're being punished for a political decision they have nothing to do with. There seems to be a sense that Russia is being punished collectively, the population. It's fueling this anger that was already here. The general public feels that it's very unfair for the U.S. and Britain to impose these kinds of severe sanctions on the entire population as a whole, not just the wealthy or the politicians, but the whole country.
0: So I just want to hone in on something that Dorsa just said. These broad sanctions affect the country as a whole. But some governments are making attempts to hold some of those wealthy and politically connected, she mentioned, to account. And while many countries have billionaires, Russias often get a specific label. There's an awful lot of Russian oligarchs. Russian oligarchs at the right hand of Vladimir Putin. The oligarchs with wealth parked around the world. We only really hear the term oligarch when it comes to Russia. For someone who may not understand what that means, tell me about who the oligarchs are.
1: Well, they are a a series of people that are very, very well connected and their connections are tied to the state and the system. After the fall of the Soviet Union, all the infrastructure, which at that time belonged to the state, was part of the state system, was up for grabs basically. Things were privatized, which were not allowed under the communist system. So there was a lot of industry to go around and these people who had the knowledge, who had the ability, who had the contacts, were able to move up very quickly in the system and become very wealthy as a result of it. And they have maintained their positions and just increased their wealth and as a result increased their powers.
0: Now those oligarchs and their assets are coming under fire too.
1: They're going to target yachts, real estate, and ill-gotten riches of Putin's inner circle. The
0: Justice Department announced a special klepto-capture task force. France is already taking action seizing one oligarch's yacht docked on the French Riviera.
1: From what analysts here have told me, they're trying to really create an atmosphere of complete isolation because of what Vladimir Putin has done. And they're hoping that the oligarchs and the people of the country will stand up and demand change. And I think that's a huge miscalculation Mm. because really the president here has such great power that he does not need to listen to anyone. It's not a system where they can rise up and basically change his mind or the system at the moment. I think that's really a miscalculation on the West part. But I think the people that are suffering or will suffer uh, will be the ordinary Russians. And about 20 million of them live below the poverty line. So these sanctions really, they are going to be very limited in what they can do. And also the idea of sanctions... Are, they don't work immediately. They are meant to have an effect in the long term. It takes a few years, really.
0: It's like death by a thousand cuts. You've witnessed the sanctions in Iran firsthand. Based on that experience, what do you think the average person in Russia might expect if this economic pressure continues?
1: I've had people ask me here what it's like being in Iran, living under those sanctions. And how are things there? How do people get things that they need? So I've been explaining how we get certain Western products through certain countries into Iran. But I think here will be much more difficult given the severe travel restrictions they placed on the country. I think they can expect that their lifestyle that they've been used to will not be sustainable for a very long time. I think they will have to get used to the idea that all the Western things that are now available here will not be available. All the Western brands and Western medicine that they have here will not be available, and that their money will not be worth as much as it is now. It will breed a whole new generation, I think, of Russians, and there's fear that really what it will do to their children's future. I've spoken to a lot of people who had different plans for their children outside of Russia, and that's all gone away now. So I think it's a very, very dark outlook. But at the same time, this country is much bigger than Iran. It's much wealthier. So I think there's still hope in that, and also hope in the fact that this war will end at some point. And maybe after that, Things will change again, but who knows? It's very difficult to say.
0: You are familiar now with reporting from places where there are restrictions and where you have to be really careful about what you say. How does this feel?
1: Were you prepared for this, for this assignment? No. When you came? No, (laughs) not at all. I came here January 11th. It's my first time in Russia. Yeah. I came here for one month. And I was very much looking forward to being in a place that I've never been before. And I read a lot about this country. I had family who lived here for many years uh, before. So I was really happy to come. And as soon as I landed, basically, it was nonstop work with everything that was happening. I think the announcement that came on February 24th at 6 a.m. by Vladimir Putin, while the United Nations Security Council was meeting, was not only a shock to this country but also to the journalists that work here and certainly to me Uh, there was a lot of rumors and speculation that this was going to happen but we actually never thought that it would it's just a very very unfortunate and sad turn of events and for this country's history and for the history of the the continent you know nobody knows how it will end but i've spoken to people here who say there is no good way out of this right the Russians believe their country is committed to something that they cannot see a positive way out of. However it ends, it will not be great for this country's future. But the leadership says differently. So maybe maybe they know something that the rest of the country doesn't. And that's
0: The Take. This episode was produced by Nagin Oliai. With Ney Alvarez, Amy Walters, Ruby Zaman, Alexandra Locke, Priyanka Tilve, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Aya El Milek and Munira El Dosari are our engagement producers. Stacey Samuel is our executive
1: producer. Special thanks to Katia Bodan. We'll be back.